Welcome back to another podcast of Driven Hunter. We're back with Tom Interbow, and this is part two. If you hadn't joined with part one, you need to check that out. But Tom's been giving us some great information on what he knows about whitetails. And if there's any guy that knows about whitetails, it's this man. He's one of my biggest mentors out there when it comes to whitetail deer. And uh, we've been talking lots about different subjects from ponds to hunting strategies and just the whole dynamics. We're going to cover, you know, shed hunting. We're going to talk about, you know, different times of the season, what your favorite places to hunt, how to hunt, and that kind of thing. Just a lot to cover, but we appreciate you joining us, so we'll get started. Well, we're going to talk about water holes because you, you taught me so much about hunting water holes and you know, everybody that's watched Driven now has seen us hunting on a lot of water holes. We build them here on yeah. our properties and have had great success. And you're right. I mean, they become a magnet for bucks at all times of the year um, yeah. until they, you know, completely freeze over. Uh, so, you know, that's really increased our hunting. And I do lots of seminars and talk a lot about water holes, but I learned that from you and the value to hunting over water and, you know, when we first started, we have, you have water all over your farm down in the valleys. Yeah, yeah. But you learned to put these things up on the top of build water holes in the tops of these ridges that really, you know, gave opportunity to the deer to to, to leave their bedding area in a sh- short little bit, just go to the the water, the water hole that was close. Not they don't want to walk all the way down the hill and go to the bottom of the valley to get a drink and then go all the way back to the top. You, yeah, I think you might have shot some deer off that one stand. We put one in up above the farm there on the south side. And we've shot probably over 40 Pope and Youngs off of that stand. And I I had a, during the rut, it, it's like I say, the, the time frames we're talking about at, at what they progress through during the year. During the rut like that, it's, it's a... A travel route in and off of a big bedding ridge, whether it's thick out there and a lot of down trees and thick area, and uh, that particular stand there, uh, I had a guy which sit- has a water hole in it, right? Yeah, right the water right. hole, and I had a guy sitting on it, and he comes out and he had seen a smaller buck and some doe, and I don't know if he had taken a shot at the one water, but uh, he said, "Well, I think that stands way over hunted." <laughs> and I go, "Well, I said, you, you know." It's it is the rut, and every day there might be bucks coming through there that haven't been there for a year, maybe. Right. So it's different bucks every day because it's the first part of November, and they're going to go to that water hole. Says, well, I'd rather sit somewhere else. So I put them somewhere else. But I says, well, I'm going to put another guy in there, and he came down, and when we were, we were eating uh, brunch, he's just going on about he had seen a, a Boone and Crockett buck and two other big ones in the 140s and 50s, and this other guy's just sitting there looking like I would. Oh, really? It kind of tickled me in a way, but it, it just goes to show you it, it's time of year where you're hunting and, and what you're hunting. you got to know what those deer are doing, you know, at, on time frames during the fall and during the rut, you know. Yeah, one thing I learned, too, by guiding at your place is that you can throw the the pressure and and stand pressure and whatever else uh, to the caution to the wind at when the rut kicks in because kicks in. all the things change. Yep. yep. The cards are flipped completely over and you know it it changes everything. So you know once you think well, you know I can't go hunt that stand cuz we've pressured it, 
day to day to day. Well, because those bucks are on the move so much, they are not even worried about pressure anymore. They're worried about one thing. So you can never really over hunt a spot when it's like hard rut because they're not in... They're not in that mode where they're worried about hunters or hunting pressure. They're not they're, in their bedroom, so to speak, where they it's it's like you going into their house and and all of a sudden you're bumping them out of there and and something's changed there because you you shouldn't be there. I mean, it's something new. If somebody walks into your house, right, you can be the same thing. I always say that. That's my favorite <laughs> thing. Yeah, like yeah, you you would learn pretty quick if somebody come in and start rearranging your house yeah and chopping down everything and then hung a tree stand in the corner of your bedroom you'd be like that's a hunter so yeah. they pay attention to detail I always said that you know you think like you got to put yourself in the deer's position and think like a deer and understand well do would i detect danger if i was a deer and you're you know start thinking like i'm pretty quick you start uh being a little wiser at how you do things and, and, and watch the life cycle of the deer for the year at what stage he's in because that during the hunting season that changes about every two weeks uh, for for a month or two in there yeah true yeah so yeah that's a good segue into our just our next little segment about i'm going to take us through a season of you know what your favorite spots where you would hunt on from early season all the way through post to rut you know we've covered a little bit here and there on some of this but if you were to you know, go set up and, and put a hunter in early season. Where's your favorite spots and what times are they? You know, where are they morning hunts, evening hunts, midday, what? Well, it's all, it's all a, early season. Early season, when, and you know as good as anybody, but it's all about feed then. So a food situation in Wisconsin, our season opens in the middle of September, and they're in their bachelor groups in, and you can, you can uh, pattern them very easily then where they're coming in and, if you got feed and you got water close to feed and stuff, uh, well, it's like uh, along fields and wh- wherever we're getting, we run in cameras, the trails coming out or even a secondary trail just off of the field, but close to a food source. And use, the trouble with hunting early season like that is leaving your stand because if if it's a, if you're getting some good bucks on cameras and stuff and they're coming out there, usually the uh, early in the year, like middle September, uh, they come out fairly early sometimes, an hour or more before dark. But a lot of times the bigger ones show up right about dark. The trouble is when you leave your stand, you got to walk through the field or to get out of the field. So You're what educated. we do is probably have somebody drive into the field to pick you up to run mm-hmm. the deer off for the vehicle or they're used to farm machinery and, and different things like that. So early season. So not tipping them off. Then yeah. You're just you're trying to keep your stuff fresh. Fresh. Yeah. So they never if have you're any have days. any indication that you're after them. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a, uh, you know, totally exactly what we do a lot. I mean, it, you know, I always preach that stand approach and exit is super important. You know, it, so many people I think mess themselves up by going in and alerting the deer that they're hunting them, whether they make sounds uh, when as they approach their stand, you know, maybe they park too close, slam the door, slam their tailgate or whatever, um, or walking and making noise, walking to their stands or climbing into their noisy stands. There's just, you're <clears throat> tipping the deer off. And there, you know, a deer's laying out there listening all day. He's attentively listening to every sound made. And he's listening to other animals that might blow the whistle, like a 
squirrel barking or a blue jay scolding or whatever. He's listening to everything in his environment. He's well tuned to it. So any foreign little sounds, he's going to listen to. And if you are making a sound like a hunter, he's going to listen to it and he's going to pay attention to it. Now, if that sound becomes danger to him, he's certainly not going to come your way at the end of the day. He's going to go the other way, yeah. or or he's going to stay put until dark cover of darkness. So, you know, we always said if you got to do this you know, spot where you got to get to a place using a motorized vehicle, have somebody drop you there and keep going. And we did that with Moses. Yep, yep. yep. You did a drop off. Exactly. You you know we knew Moses was, and we'd with, been doing it regularly at the other stand, but we dropped you in the same place and you just went around and up. So we, right. we drove in out the same way as we had been doing it, but he had been coming into the old stand when we weren't there, but he knew when we were there. So we, you know, the premise is to like danger comes and danger goes, you know. Yeah. So he hears the vehicle coming and then he hears it leaving. So if he hears it coming and stopping and then all of a sudden, you know, what's going on, they get nervous. So if he can hear it coming and going as soon as it leaves, then he goes back to his natural routine yeah. or lets his guard down, and we've always done that. You know, we've also been asked, I mean, there's been, a, I've went through every case scenario like you have, Tom, about, um, of course, you have hunters. I'm, if I'm just doing the hunting, if we're sitting in a stand, you know, a lot of times if we can get somebody to come and pick us up, that's the best case yeah. scenario because the deer cannot, I mean, if a, a vehicle blows them out of the field, yeah. it's it's natural for them. You know, they're used to that, and they don't, they're not going to come back in, into that field the next day all on alert because there was a vehicle the night before that drove in there. There's just... Yeah. I, think, I think leaving your stand is as important as your approach. And I think... I think it's more important. More important, Or yeah. not tipping them off because... Yeah. And I always say, you know, the thing with it is like even a doe, a big mature doe, you know, if she sees you getting out of your stand... Guess what she's going to do yeah. the next time she comes into that field? Yeah, the first thing that. she's going to do is identify, are you back in that stand? Because she ain't forgetting. Yeah. And she'll she'll can kind of blow your whole deal for the night because she's going to look up there, or and then she's going to try to go downwind of it to double check to make sure that you're not up there. And it's just because she saw you getting out mm. of there. And, and if she does smell you, then guess what? She starts blowing. The other deer that are staging or even in their bed yet hear her blowing. They're like, huh, I ain't getting up and going that way because there's something wrong. And so, again, you're blowing your deal. You got to make sure that you, you know, do the right things. You know, if we're sitting in a tree stand at night and we got deer all in front of us and it's getting dark, you know, and, and there's nobody to come and blow the deer up. How do you get out of there? Well, I mean, we do the simple thing is we got to blow them out without them identifying that we're in that tree. And the only way that I found out that's very effective is by not coyote howling at them or barking. I do kind of a loud, super fast, uh, very rapid barking like a, I don't know if you've ever heard deer chase and chased by dogs, but it's a real fast cadence of like them on their tail and when they hear that loud fast rapid you know they just run they mm. flee they don't stop they're they don't sit there and look at you like if you coyote haul they're just gonna look up at you and go huh there's a hunter up there thinking he's a coyote but they uh 
you know, with that fat, fast, loud, rapid barking, they just blow out in every direction and it, bl- it clears the field. And I do it enough to make sure it is cleared. And then I get down and then they are not there watching me get down. No. And they're a long ways off. No. So it keeps my hunting space fresh. That's the only way we do it when we don't have somebody to come and pick, pick us up. up. So that's great, great points. Um, early season. Though. Early season. So let's, so you're saying field edges on food sources are your primary thing because I know everything changes in the and early season. I, uh, also, a lot of guys, you know, early season, I'd say that I, I feel 90, over 90% of the buckshot are in the evening because they're coming, they're usually bedded early in the morning. And to get in, a, if I'm going to hunt mornings, I'll hunt in a farm or an area I'm not going to hunt that night. And probably on a pond or something in the bedding area. Oh, wow. Inside yeah. the timber. Yeah. Because we've been Early hunting. in the morning. We've been uh, hunting early. All, oh, in the morning. Early in the morning, yeah. But in the evening, you want to hunt close to the food, you know, where they're coming out. But That's a good more, point. So you, you're allowing the deer to actually come to you in the evenings, not you going to them. Right. But in the morning they're coming. They're bedding early, and they might if it's if it's been warm for a while, and uh, you know they they all might get up and walk over and take a drink or something. But still, you got to figure over ninety percent of the bucks shot are in the evening. They they are some of the big bucks are most of them are bedded fairly early before light. Right, yeah. and and the reason you know we should explain this a little bit. You know, you, you got a guy coming in from out of state that's only on a five six day hunt. He don't want to sit around in the mornings a lot of no, time. He, he wants to go yeah. hunting. He wants to maximize his time. Yeah. So you have to put these guys up. somewhere. Yeah. yeah so you you've learned I've that. Put them on ponds or in close to bedding areas up high, maybe where we hunt. Coming in, in the backside or something yeah. on them. And then not where. Yeah. So you're 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 not coming through the fields where they probably are out in. Mm-hmm. You know, but and then uh, for early a lot of states uh, season doesn't open until October first. Then you're in a different ball game because around the first of October, I know in Buffalo County here in Wisconsin, those bachelor groups break up and those uh, bucks uh, become loners and they move off and they they move back off their summer feed into their security spots where that they feel safe and that's where they're going to spend the month of October. So around the first of October, if you're a lot of XA, I think Michigan opens October first. Yeah, you're Iowa you're hunting. Does. You're you're hunting. Uh, it's a little different deal. Than, mm-hmm. I mean, the things have changed. And a lot of the deer. I mean, I follow quite a few that we filmed during the summer, on their summer feed, and I I have several that you know have moved a mile or two around the first of October, and I've been able to follow some and getting them on cameras in their transition when they're moving back in. Then they become... Where do they go? Well, they like some of the ones that I've been able to follow, like the resident ones on my farm there, they bed right in a real steep, uh, like some old logging road or a little plateau along a steep edge where they can see the whole valley, and it's real thick above security them. security area. Security area. They spend... Is that a cool area, or is it a thermal area? Do, I mean, if it is it an area that has shade, or... or well, it, it, can be, it can be either... Uh, uh, Usually above them toward the field, it's pretty thick. And when they when they lay on a little, if it's an old log and roll or thick, they can shelf, see everything yep. shelf. <clears throat> excuse me, they can see everything below them. 
and that's their security spot. You can go in there and bump them out of there, and they'll just circle around and go right back there because they're, if, unless you don't, if you do it several times, you might run them out of there. <clears throat> but they're going to lay there, and I've I've been able to catalog some of my, like, four-year-old bucks every every day almost to the hour, minute almost, where they'll, they get up at night and walk up to the field uh, probably 50, 60 yards that they're only bedding in the steep part just off the field, and they feed out there. They usually mark it with a rub when they show back up around the first. And then at night they'll not travel far but maybe go to one of my ponds and where the family groups are, hang around at night, and they'll, they, they're there at 1 o'clock, 2, 3 o'clock. By 4, 4, 4 o'clock in the morning they're back bedded again on that security spot. So they're hard to hunt for probably a week or two there. Is they're, it because is it because Tom there there's just not a lot of travel and and you got to get in real tight at that period? Yeah, well, there to get in on them you're going to bump them because you can't come through the thick stuff above them and right. you can't come up from below them and they're already bedded before light. Right. So they're coming out but they're about a half hour after dark when they're going to go feed. <clears throat> There's one exception there. About the middle of uh, October, it's usually around the 11th or 12th, uh, some of the older does come in heat. And those bucks will leave. They'll come out a half hour early, and be, you could shoot them during daylight at that on that day. They'll go that night and hook up with a doe, and they might be with her for a day or two. Right by the 13th or 14th, they're back to their old pattern again. And I get them every night feeding there half hour after dark and on the pond at 1, 2 in the morning. Then they're bedded again. So th that's I'm talking about older deer, four years old or older. The younger bucks are different. They, they're a different animal. They, they, and they'll do that until that really that pre-rut kicks in. Yeah, and tell, tell almost there, there's one the other day, and I, I, it might sound weird to you, but I, it, I've, over the years... You've made a lot of weird statements over the years. <laughs> I had to know what you. <laughs> anyway, the, I feel that, and I've, I, it took me about ten years of watching a primary scrape area to figure this out. And and uh, what they, uh, what happens is, is when those older does come in heat around the 11th or 12th of October, mm -hmm. they go to an area. These does go there, and they initiate it. And by sitting those, I used to sit, I'd find these, this primary hub scrape every year, and I'd sit there, and I'd see all these young bucks. I'd come in there in middle of October, and it's all tore up, and sit there for a week or two and, and see a lot of younger bucks come in there in the morning and in the afternoon even and, and work these scrapes and bed. Then I finally started sitting it before any of the signs showed up. After sitting it for 10 years and really watching it, I, I wasn't there. I was there at the wrong time. It had already happened there. Well, this doe... Uh, you want to go there on the onset of those things. Before that, it happened. Really, before these yeah. start seeing all these big scrapes, right? Right. You want to be there as they start you, making them. They call them hub scrapes, and what they are is all these bucks. And, and you'll see a lot of bucks there, but they're all younger bucks. But yeah. if you're after that big one... He uses that. He hooks up with that doe when she comes in heat there. She's left scent there. So then all these younger bucks smell that, and they come in, and they start, you know, working the scrapes, urinating in them and licking the branches and bed down and watch them. They do that. He's off with that doe for a couple of days, and he's back in a security spot again 
hiding out and laying up and nocturnal. One day, uh, the 26th of October, and I've seen it very only one day, 26th or 7th, where I've been able to run cameras and stuff. And and it, it's it's too much of a coincidence that I, I got onto it years ago and there was a big buck hitting Illinois by a car. Uh, it was a world-class buck. It had a common base pointer. would have been a world oh, yeah, record years ago. Yeah, I remember that deer. Okay, well, it was hit on October 26th at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. I thought, why is that deer on his feet at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on the 26th? Then years later, there was one in Minnesota here that was hit, a big one like that, the same day, same time. And we were hunting probably 25 years ago back in a farm north, northern Buffalo County, and we were in the camper on his way back on his ridge, and the farmer was chisel plowing his field. Well, he'd gone in for dinner, and he comes out. We're, we're taking a nap. We'd hunted in the morning, and we're in the camper. He's pounding on the door. Oh, I just seen the biggest buck of my life just making a scrape right there over you. from your camper. And it was 1 o'clock in the afternoon on the 26th. What and kind I go, of hunters were you? You guys were sleeping. <laughs> we were sleeping in the camper. <laughs> So anyway, had a I, few too many wobbly pops the night before, I think. <laughs> anyway, what else do you do at one o'clock in the afternoon on the twenty sixth of October? I you want to go hunting in the afternoon, <laughs> but anyway, uh, that I I kind of caught on to that, and I started watching that, mm -hmm. and I started running cameras on scrape lines, and and then I started sitting that same primary that I'd been sitting ten years, and. I was sitting right on the steep part on the downwind side of, of the ridge come over, and I was just where it dropped off steep, kind of where you shot hit Moses, right along mm -hmm. that steep edge. And the scrapes were all worked up, been worked up by all the little bucks for two weeks, and you know, or three or four weeks almost, three weeks. And here comes this big buck, and he, he comes by, and the wind's coming over the ridge through the, through the primary. He, and I'm sitting on there. He comes all the way by, scenting it. Mm -hmm. He gets by, he goes back, and he goes up and works a scrape. And then he goes over the ridge into the wind. Well, if I'd have been sitting up on top or on the scrapes, he would have scented me. I'd right. never seen him. You know, I just because I happened to be down there, then I realized that. That's, the, a, great, that's a great point. The 26th, what, what they do is those big bucks leave their security spot, and they make a loop, and they'll, they'll travel a, a, a scrape line and a rub line through different ridges all day long and then go back and lay down again and wait. And it, what they do is they run a route that they're going to run when the rut kicks in about the 1st of November. So when the rut really kicks in and those bucks get locked down with the doe, when they leave that doe, they wherever she route. took them, they're going to get right on that scrape line. They run on the 26th and they're going to come in and downwind those primaries trying to find another one. And early in the rut, there's 80% of them coming in the heat. It don't take them five minutes and they got another doe they locked down with. So they're always fairly safe because they're they're not moving a lot. You know, they just only move certain times. So key dates like that, I think I really found are real positive Things can happen those days if you're. Yeah, I, I learned that from you a long time ago. He's like, hey, he says, it, it, it's, we're coming up on the 22nd. He said, they're, they're going to be opening the scrapes. And then almost to the to the day, you know, they, they start appearing. Tom's got it down to science on studying these deer for that many years that he knows when things are going to be happening, you know, and it, it, you know, it just happens. It must be more on the, the photosynthesis period of, 
of, of it the, to when your, yeah. the amount of daylight in the day, you know, that triggers a lot of this. Mm-hmm. I know temperature sometimes plays a role on how the movement is and in the moon and moon as does, well. Yeah. You know, we can talk moon phases and positions and everything it, it, else, but, you know, it's still... Again, it's still like the amount of daylight in a day that really gets things kicked off. And it's interesting, you know, I think that that's what's made you very successful over the years is being able to key in on how the the movements are changing and you're changing with them and being, again, a step ahead of them and getting hunters in there in those areas ahead of time, not not sitting there in the dead dead areas, they, you know, I think pro fishermen tell you the same thing. Yeah. They look at a body of water and they eliminate the dead water. Yeah. They know exactly where they need to be sure. fishing to try to catch a fish. Now, that don't mean the fish are going to bite, yeah. but they are going to be where the fish, fish are. are. And fishing, you know, fishing sure. where the fish aren't, they're never going to catch them. So... You put yourself in that position, and then you roll the dice, and if the deer up on you the always, feet, you, you always get look look for a reason about why the deer is going to be there, and you know, he ha- he's there for a reason, right? And at time of year, wherever it might be, you know, it's uh, always for a purpose. Purpose, yeah. And I, you know, a long time ago, I learned from guys like Miles Keller and Stan Potts and all these bow folkers. They all say the same thing. You know, once you see a big buck do something once. There's a really good chance that real soon he's going to repeat that repeat process. Repeat that, yeah. Because he's like you, you and I are getting older. We, you know, get into a rhythm. You get a rut. You know, you feel <laughs> you feel very safe doing something over and over again. It becomes, hey, it's not like the young days where you're running around. You know, getting crazy. If you, I, I just looked at some uh, state of Pennsylvania has been got some grants and been studying deer uh, GPS in them and and. Uh, Tag some bucks that they've been following, like during the rut, every 20 minutes, and, and they have a topple of where they're traveling. And the state of Wisconsin's done some of it too. And real interesting, and and it really coincides what we're talking about because they, one of the, one of the bucks at the state of Pennsylvania. I think you can go online and find that. I think there's a podcast on it or something. But they, uh, during the rut, during the hunting season, where that buck goes, and it's it's uh, done in uh, terrain similar to Buffalo County, kind of bluff country like that. And during the month of uh, October, uh, three and four year old bucks uh, travel a distance of less than a mile a day, and at night like that. And the next 24 days in November, the same bucks travel like 96 miles and 98 miles in a 1,600-acre area. And then they also make one pass out like the one I was talking about that went six to eight miles in one night and return to that area at the end of the rut. So it's right. pretty interesting because they, they, they mark them every like 20 minutes or so. On, on where they go and, and, and where they live. And it, they live in a relatively small area, almost like 40 acres during the month of October, your older bucks. So, so like you said, seeing them there, you're, you're probably going to see them there again. Right. You know. So, you know, we kind of covered the early season and, and the pre-rut period of where you would hunt these deer. How about rut periods? I mean, is there one particular spot you like versus others? I mean, do you start hunting doe groups or areas i mean ponds are still effective you know where do you put your hunters during the rut period if i'm coming hunting at bluff country outfitters um what i would base that on this is past areas where 
those where we've seen those getting bread and it, it, you know it could change anywhere I, I noticed that on one of my properties one time where uh it was an old cabin back in the valley and there was like a seep there with water and it was real dry out and evidently a dough had come into heat getting water there or something because it it just got pounded and those are Every buck around's coming in there because he's sent, sent in that dough. And we, I think we shot two bucks off of that spot that year. And I figured the next year, I was hot on that spot. It was dead. Nothing happened there. And I actually found the primary. It was way over the ridge on a different valley, you know, probably a half a mile from that one. Mm -hmm. So that can change. I, I just, you know, assumed that it was dry that year and that she happened to be there because of that water and that, that's where she came into heat, and that's where they all showed up there. Yeah, I know you said, you know, you, you, a lot of times you, you put your hunters in for what inventory other hunters have seen, and if yeah. you, you see where a hot doe has come into heat and a bunch of bucks are piled up and chasing her, and you're going to put a bunch of hunters around there. That's not always the case, so like a guy that's just hunting, you know, a normal hunting, going out hunting his farm or whatever, you know, how would this translate to his strategies to where, you know, would you, if, if, if it was take hunters out of the other hunters out of the equation, you just had one hunter you're taking out and putting them in a spot. Would, would you take during the rut period, would you take a guy for an evening hunting and set him on a food source that's a, uh, you know, getting hit heavy, you know, whether it's a pick corn field or, or, you know, some area that becomes just a hot pocket for a food source that all the does are going to, and you're banking on a buck coming in there looking for a doe, or would uh, you go into pinch points or funnels or what? Well, what I've noticed in the bluff country down there, it seems like what they're going to do is it, it almost seems like the, I see, see times where your guys will be sitting and they're seeing over 20 does in a group. It's almost like these does go into a group for safety or something where these bucks can't weed just one out. They're all running all over the place kind of. But if they do weed one out that's coming in that... Tom, it, that's in that's just in general. They yeah. do that to us all the time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, the, the lot of parallels there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so you got to... But if they do come in, they, he, they usually lead them off or go off by themselves somewhere. You know, I I see a lot of the over the years running guys hunters in and out. I've seen a lot of the actual breeding done right in the steep parts. And remember that albino, yeah, being bred that was a steep, real steep area, couldn't open hardly, area. Yeah, they couldn't even stand on it. It was so steep. Yeah. It's like a goat prairie, you know, a real cliffy yeah. area. That again, they're they're chasing around in there, and it's almost like that area is where they can get a doe to stand for them. So if it was one hunter taking them out, I would probably put them in an area on a steep part like that where I know that's happened in the past and mm -hmm. might be, you know, a route out of where there is a bunch of does or a primary off of a primary somewhere where they would pick her up and, and be moving to that area or through that area. Yep. You know, yeah. and it would be from past experiences of what happened there in the past, I think, it, because to just pick those areas, you never know where that's going to happen. It's kind of a haphazard. It's a hard time to hunt exactly knowing where to put them. You know? it, is. it is. I know. I, I get so frustrated during this period. That's why we generally we, we transition into other states that have different things going on. So I kind of avoid this time. It seems odd to avoid the rut. Yeah. But 
I, I, I think that for us, you know, we're trying to film a deer, a big buck coming in, not like blazing behind a doe and like you got to make this snap, shot, you know, shot yeah. and you want to get good film outside of water holes. I think water holes in a rut, especially in those morning, morning hunts. I love hunting water holes, uh, on a, maybe a full moon, uh, period where, the moon has been full all night, and the bucks have chased hard all night long because it's been bright out, and it's usually crisp and cold when you get a full moon, clear evening, high pressure, and then all of a sudden, um, that next morning, usually, you know, there's a dead period right at first light there, but then, you know, getting sitting on those ponds till 9 to 12 o'clock, at noon yeah. become hot pockets hot. because the first thing they do is that buck then chasing. chasing. Now he say rested up. He gets up. First thing he's going to do, maybe go get a drink because he's dehydrated or he's going to go check that pond because mm-hmm. other does come there too. It just becomes a really good spot. And I know you taught me that back in the day, you know, to, to hunt those uh, particular areas. Well, yeah, ponds like that, We when we first put those ponds in and that, we put them in for the rut figuring the bucks were chasing, they were dehydrated, and just what you've made the point, the does go there too because they get chased so bad that they, they end up going there, and they get to be areas they kind of hang out. One thing we talked about earlier, we maybe mentioned, is that uh, what we found found out as we put the ponds in that in early season, September and early October, uh, a lot of those ponds were close to bedding areas, and if you got a really hot, dry spell, uh the ponds were good, and we've shot a lot of nice bucks. So you shot one, I think, uh, over on Hoover's there that time on a pond yeah. early. Yeah. And uh, I like early season. I mean, yeah. we've killed tons of bucks early season, yeah. evening hunts. Well, we bank on a, a warm day where they're sitting there all day without water, and the first thing they got to do is generally we'll water the before they feed. One, one thing we know and learned, I guess, just over the years by – one year it was a real kind of warm spell, and it was early in the early season, and we were sitting in the ponds and we weren't seeing any deer coming in, and I just couldn't figure it out. And then I, you're like, why aren't we seeing deer? Because no, it, be. it should be there because it was warm for quite a spell. Well, I finally realized it came down to the wind because at night. It, it, in the mornings in the in the fall like that in September and October a lot of times it's a lot of humidity in the air and if uh at in the mornings it would be foggy and I remember getting wet up to my knees and walking through that stuff but anyway be, yeah, I got figured and what happened was is those deer go out at night and they're feeding on alfalfa and uh clover and in the morning that stuff is dripping wet with the fog and stuff so if it's windy, it dries out the fields. But if it's no wind, they're the just dripping. Right they're getting enough moisture off of that all night long yeah. eating that they don't have to go to the ponds. So watch the wind. and. and so if you get a, a windy period that keeps those that dew from forming on those plants, that's, that's uh, when to hunt the water. Yeah, yep. Great point. Well, you know, even I've never even figured that out. And I would have just, I'm probably like, you know, like, why? They should be here because yeah. it's been dry out. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I, water, have become, it's become hunting water holes. And we can talk, you know, 
long extensiveness, and I have that on my list here because well, Tom taught me a lot about hunting water holes because we started over there in the day building these water holes. And again, his farm has creeks in the bottom of the valleys, but we put these water holes strategically up in the top of ridges. Tom got over carried away sometimes by building water holes. <laughs> one time there was one ridge and had, it wasn't a very big ridge and he had two water holes on it. I'm like, now you're confusing the deer, Tom. <laughs> no, they can't, they can't decide where to go. And of course, you know, we had stands hung everywhere, but, um, well, it, we, we put water holes in and then they didn't work out so good. So we took them out again yeah. and moved them and I've done that. tried it. Yeah. But you know, it's, it, Utah also taught me that it's trial and error a little bit that yeah. you can put a water hole in a spot you might think is great and it might never really develop into much. Yeah. And then you might put us another one over in a little different area and it becomes a hotbed and it becomes one of your best ponds mm -hmm. ever. And it's just kind of like what the deer yeah, like and where it's, you know, you might not know why they like it so yeah. much. There, there's a lot of reasons. Yeah. You know, it might be because of their particular bedding area. It might be the wind that yeah. they how they're traveling, traveling. the ridges. There, there's, well, we're just trying to stick well, these things in areas. One thing I just been kind of always thinking about and thinking, I, I over the years like shed hunting and stuff. I find a lot of sheds along creeks or in the water. And I notice I have springs on my farm all over and right by the buildings, and they, they pound those areas. And the colder it is, it seems like the more water they need. So if you, uh, we have a farm that's up on a ridge, and there is no water there. And I talked to a guy that run about 600 feet of extension cord and put a heater in his pond and just had an open area, and they are pounding it. So... They yeah. really, in colder it is, the more water they need. It's like my cats, and I have cats on the porch out there in the house, and water, they just lap, lap that stuff up, and right in that spring behind the house, it just gets pounded in the winter. You yeah. Know? yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, giving them that water source, they have to have water, even in the winter In months. the winter, yeah. Yeah, they... Winter, even more so. They, yeah. they just... I've always said that, you know. I mean, that's why we've had so much water hunts in our in our I mean, episodes sure. because and when i go out and create food plots and in little areas that become my my hunting area or my my kill spots um i kind of give them a whole plethora of different you know things uh, i i create a, f a, f a food, food plot and then i put a water source there as well a pond and then I might pull a licking branch down and wire it up so they have a scrape area. I might plant some fruit trees there so they might eat apples. Yeah. You know, and I let that thing mature. And I give them a couple different varieties of food. Like right here in the back um, on our farm, you know, I have standing corn in an interior food plot that's back mm -hmm. in there where they're going to stage. They don't have to come all the way out into my big fields to feed. They can stage up. Back there, I got standing corn in the timber, which is tricky to you know, plant, make, grow. But then I also have brassica and clover and alfalfa back there for the early season protein stuff and what they're going to be feeding on before the corn. And then there's water there. You know, there's apple trees there. And, you know, there's also, um, I got acorn trees and stuff that drop dropping acorns. But I kind of give them... Uh, little variety of everything yeah. yeah so 
you know, while they might come in for a drink, they might stick around to eat and give me the shot opportunity. And, and now that changes throughout the seasons because, you know, while they might eat the greens and stuff early season and not really touch the grains, all of a sudden when it gets cold, they don't, you know, and that stuff freezes out, that green stuff freezes out, then they all of a sudden go over and start eating the, you know, corn uh-huh. and soybeans. So I, I kind of adjust my hunting as well on my food sources as the transitions, I give them a multitude of different things to eat. Yeah, one thing, remember when we used to go up shed hunting up in Canada, and we North Dakota and up in there, and they, oh, and those guys would just swear, and you got to plant uh, sunflowers. Oh, they just love those things. The deer are just in them. So I tried it, <laughs> and I never saw anything but a bird in there because, and the the difference was they didn't have any of their feed up there. That was just a key extra feed for them where you know they they don't it wasn't like around us they had they had apples they, they got had, everything they yeah. got everything they got alfalfa like, they got what is this guy planting sunflowers <laughs> sunflowers well, well, it, that, areas where you live in it it depends on you you know they they'll if they get used to eating something there sure they'll be they'll get in it and eat it for sure they'll eat what they what's available but if they got everything else it's and like you can like my farm, I have a farmer up on the hill above me, and he's got cattle, so he's got manure and stuff, and his alfalfa is always prime. I can't compete with that. I can't grow alfalfa that right. good. And those deer, no. So I, it's great for having that right there that, you know, we're able to hunt that and stuff, but it isn't something that I can go out and plant and compete with that, what he's got, you know. That's right. I mean, sometimes you got to take advantage of what, uh, you know, uh, is out there whether you, you have lots of apple orchards and stuff like that are producing apples. We talked about how apple trees have be, are so prominent for places to set up and hunt big deer early season. Um, just offering those different food sources, I think, has really helped us. And I've planted a lot of different things, but you mentioned just a second ago something that rings so true here with deer in our part of the country. And I think anywhere because i've seen this happen um when we started planting brassicas here and we use evolve brassicas shot plot and uh seven card stud and a bunch of different you know mixtures but when we started planting first started planting brassicas our deer were like what is this yeah they had no clue nor did they want to eat it now if i take you out there right now it's it's like a cattle yard. Hammered, yeah. Yeah, and they have really learned to the eat. taste of it yeah. and, and become... But at first, they didn't want any part of it. Now, I think that's important because I've seen that in different parts of the country. Yeah. If they're not used to something, well, it, it takes them a while to adjust. But once they get the taste of it, and, and if you're the only one that yeah. gots it, yeah. you're drawing in the deer. Yeah. And that goes back to us when we were kids. You know, you eat every carrot and pea on your plate. <laughs> Yeah, if you spinach or something, you wouldn't. But you get you got you learn the taste of it, then you you know it was fine. You know, but it's kind of they they don't know what it is right away because they've never had it. But if they taste it, and all of a sudden they say, "Yeah." (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, talk to people and are like, "I plant Nebraska's, and boy, there ain't even a deer track in there. I didn't see anything in there." I mean, yes, I tell those people. Give it a few years. Well, it, but after a while, 
it becomes a major food source, <laughs> not just one that they might not even want to touch. And it just takes it takes them that long to, to adjust. adjust. And especially in an area like, oh, here. Yeah. I mean, this is food central. Yeah. I mean, everything's got, out there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a deer can go anywhere and eat anything mm. before it's harvested, you know? Yeah. So, um, you know, you got to provide those food sources. And then, like the brassicas that we plant here, we try to go for providing them the greens and a lot of the, the that protein. You know, there's a lot of tonnage. Do you put like purple top? There are turnips, turnips yeah, and radishes, radishes and stuff and, like that. What time of year do you plant them? I, you know, that's a good point because I plant them in later summer. Later, later. And they're, they're a little easier to grow. You don't have to be a great farmer, but I, I prep the soil. Well, I gotta, I, I, I've had that same luck, but planting them late in August, oh, man, they just pound them. But if I plant them early and they get real big and they just really them. smell, and they they might eat them if it's really cold, they eat the tops off It's them. They get stemmy and woody. It's yeah. like eating, yeah. you know, uh, a radish. If you Have yeah. you ever ate a radish that's been in the ground a long time? They're really woody and they yeah. they don't taste good no. there. Yeah. But if you eat a, one that's just, just came cool. up, yeah. Yeah, they're really good. And it's the same with lettuce if it's... Yeah. It's been matured oh. a long time and versus new growth. Well, you know, so you try to plant your foods like that to where, you know, you, later. you, you don't want to plant them new too late to where you, the cold weather affects the growing season. Mm. You just got to, I always time my, uh, I go out and I spray my fields and kill off the weeds and I retill it and let the weeds come back up and I kill them one more time with uh, spray with Roundup. And then I go in and I get that seed bed ready and till it one more time. And I plant it the same time just prior to a rain. And yeah. uh, I want that rain to come in there and, and, and germinate it. Yeah. Basically, yeah. And it's just seed contact. I don't have to bury this seed, it's small seed. Yeah. And I'll, you know, so you don't want to get it in the ground too far. You just want to make seed contact. Yeah. So I cult the packet. After That's I, a good point, called the packing. Yeah, so yeah. your seed is firmly in place yeah. with the soil contact, and then when the rain hits it, I mean, in a couple of days, it's up, you know, and growing, and that stuff grows fast. So, you know, I'll plant, a lot of times I plant my brassicas uh, at the very end of July, first part of August, August, and usually our growing season's done at the end of August. Okay. So a three, four-week period there. And it, I want it to get about... Knee high, not quite knee yeah. high, about shin high, like you know, yeah. where your calf, if you're standing there, yeah. calf high, where calf muscle would be, and that way it's nice and lush, you know, looks like a big carpet. And yeah. the deer, you know, will love you, it. Yeah. And I underseed it with clovers, and uh, and that way the following year, that clover is as uh, the brassicas serve as a nurse crop, so you know. Then the next year, the clovers grow up. Now I got a, a clover Real. plot that is going to come up year after year. So um, that's usually what we do to uh, plant that that kind but, of thing. But, yeah, planting that stuff too a bit over the years. Of, <clears throat> oh, you mentioned calder packing. Oh, and I made the mistake. I had a rear tiller went in, tilled up food plot, seeded the whole thing. Looked beautiful. Come back like three weeks later. And it was all dirt yet, except where I drove out with my truck and my it was, stuff was up about that high in my tire tracks because it, it was so it. loose of soil, it didn't have nothing to grab to to germinate the seeds. So, right. 
So call the packing is, is is a key too. You know, I mean, some people don't have. Well, you know, I don't want to got a cult packer. I don't even want to. You know, no, I don't know what one is, or nor do I want to go buy one. There's other ways to drive across firm. with your wheeler or something. Yeah, yeah, you could you could do that, or you can get a heavy drag with yeah. some weight on top no. of it, logs, you know, blocks, whatever, to firm that soil down. Um, but you want to not have it too loose yeah. and uh, just. You know, get that seed bedded in. Oh, a lot of guys plant beans just by broadcasting beans. Yeah. You don't have to have a high end packer to plant soybeans. We plant evolved mean bean all over and we broadcast it with a spreader and we'll just go and till it in, lightly yeah. till it in. Now, a bean seed has got to be just in the dirt a bit. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, usually they always say uh, the, not very far. Yeah. yeah, generally the width of a seed. Yeah. You know, whatever that seed width is, is how deep it needs to yeah. be in the soil. So it's got to be in the soil. So we just lightly get it in the soil or drag it in. Yeah. And that stuff just blows oh, up. Oh, and blows you, up, yeah. You've known that because you've had bean fields that the deer never ate off. And then you go in there in the spring and you just till it. My best crop I ever had was that. I just, just in grew up. I was going to replant it. And I, did, I dragged it and I didn't get at it right away. And it came up and... One of the best farmers in the area, or at least some of my land. What did you do to that bean field? <laughs> Just dragged it. <laughs> so, so you you luck out sometimes. You know? Nice farming. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to it. Yeah, yeah it's but deer. Deer got us into farming, I guess. So. <laughs> I I have learned that. Yeah. You know, I I enjoy planting food plots and getting this stuff ready. It sometimes takes a little bit of work to get them right, but. I've learned over the years, you just, if you get your soils right and, you know, you prep it right and you plant it at the right times and you keep the stuff sprayed or, or trimmed where you got to, you know, if your clovers get too big, it stems out, keeping it cut. That was, that's the thing too on food plots. If you, if you gauge the number of deer you have in your area, cause I had, I run into that early when I had some big uh, clover plots, I couldn't get them cut off. It was always be wet and rain. If you cut them to get them off the field, or they choke out the rest of it. But they, if they got, I had to rely on a farmer to come in and cut it, and and chop it or get it off there. And it it seemed like you know with the rain and stuff, it never was a timely basis. So I ended up just planting them big enough where the deer would keep them ate down. Otherwise, it turned to stem and it wasn't anything good for the deer. You know they wouldn't touch yeah. it. So. You just make it big enough for the amount of deer you have that they keep it trim for you. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know, good. So. I never thought of it that way. I, yeah. I think what I do is I mow ours quite often. Mow it, yeah. Now, it, you know, some people don't have that kind of time or yeah. resource to do that, but I got a, I got a mower behind uh, my, you know, my utility tractor. It's just a, basically, you know, a three-point mower, yeah. and, and uh, that does a nice job. I don't ever bale it. Because yeah. I don't let it get that big. Big so, to do it, yeah. Yeah, what I always think of it, you think about like mowing your lawn. Now, if you let your lawn get way high out of control, knee there. high, yeah, you're going to have a lot to get off there in order for that stuff to start growing. But if you keep it mowed, mowed quite a bit, right yeah. a bit, it keeps growing nice and lush and, and then it's very, you know, nutritious and, and it's very healthy. Yeah. That'll keep growing up and it's the, all new generated. See sure. or new plants, and that's so. what they like is those new shoots. Yep. yep, that's what that's the key to it. Yeah. So I treat my clover plots a lot like that. Okay. 
That's you know. a perfect way to do it. Cause, yeah. Yep. It works good. And, and but not all of us got all the time you got. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to offer you <laughs> right. a job. <laughs> with, you are getting with older. Your, now, with your business, Pat, I don't know how you have any time. <laughs> <laughs> we we stay a little bit busy. Yeah. I was going to ask Tom if you want to come over and my food plots this year. But, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, you did mention, um, you mentioned shed hunting, you know, a couple different times here. And, you know, we're in the time of year, we have a long history. That's how we got to know each other back in the day from shed hunting and just being out there, you know, all spring long looking for antlers and stuff and, and doing some preseason scouting. But let's talk shed hunting because I think that a lot of people can get a lot out of this podcast and uh, learn, you know, I want to pick your brains a little bit about what you know about shed hunting because I know... You know, you've done it so long, and you know, you're you know exactly where to find these sheds by going out and kind of eliminating de- you know dead areas, and even you know your son Shane. I got to get him over here because he's a shed hunting fanatic. <laughs> I call him the shed shyster. Um, <laughs> tell me about you know your favorite times to go shed hunting and where those would be in you know here in the Midwest. Where do you start? When do you start looking and where? Well. You know, I run cameras most of the year round, especially during the winter months and too. So, and because if you got snow or something, you see where the tracks are and where the deer are. And uh, they start shedding. There's a few sheds every year in December and then January. And of course, by end of February. Are you running your cameras on your food sources? Yep. Yep. So, like yeah, your bean fields? And, and, yeah. yeah. And wherever, wherever I see good travel routes in the snow. Okay. I'll put them on trails to to and from food plots. They're, they're all, it's feed at that time in the winter, so yep. they're going to going to feed. So any any like uh, with the steep bluffs in Buffalo County, it, it can be twenty degrees, and those south slopes are melting off because the sun hits them directly, and it's it's water dripping. Uh, you know where it hits off the roof to even if it's twenty degrees. So it doesn't have to be like. 30 degrees or something but the south sides usually melt off you know if depending on the weather but they melt off off and on during the winter so south slopes is uh they can get at acorns and a lot of feed you know on the south slopes and then a lot of the our food pots we leave like standing corn or beans or whatever would be you know in those areas so the food plots are definitely the key and if you think about it you know in the, in the winter it's it's dark early, you know, probably five o'clock or four or five o'clock. Sometimes it's getting dark, and in the morning it doesn't get light till seven. So th- those deer come out before they're spending probably three quarters of the time in a twenty-four hour period on the food plots out in the field. So the major they're active at that time. They're constantly sparring, fighting over food, and they're active all night. So. Most of the day they're out there, so most of the sheds are in the fields, uh, or in areas close to close the to them. Where they're it, you it, know those it, little I, grassy areas that are south facing, south facing that have they, melted off. Those are like one of my favorite spots. Yeah, they, because well, you can find those. I mean, those pounded areas where they're just flat because they're bedding in there and stuff. That's where they hang out all night long yeah. in this long darkness period. Yeah. So they might eat in the in the in the food source itself and then they find that little melted off area that's comfortable to lay down in and and hang out in 
and spar and whatever those are those those are kind of the really hot areas and they're generally in those little self-facing spots that are melted off you know and in our country where there is snow i think it even down in iowa where they don't get snow those those little grassy areas that you know that are self-facing are still prominent places to find sheds if there's a little you know cedar trees are huge right yeah yeah. Where I like finding a lot of sheds around those cedar trees. I found them hanging in the branches too. Yeah, you know it's, it's oh, different yeah. several times we have. Yeah, but yeah, the, 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 uh, the, you'll find sheds you know where they bed and sometimes on the trail a little, but they don't travel far from that feed. They're not burning up a lot of energy, so they're not going far. But you think about it, they're when they're, they're only on the trail five or ten minutes, and then they're bedded. During the day, somewhat, so, but they're in the beds a lot fewer hours than they are out in the field, and they're not very active in the beds. They're just laying there. So, most of the greater percentage of the sheds will be in the field in the or sources. or in the bed or along the. But most of them in the field. Yeah, I like. I mean, I think I always start with the food source and and hit the food sources first. You know, those open areas, because they're the areas you can comb the quickest, yeah. unless it's a cornfield. Standing yeah. corn, oh, it's sometimes really hard, hard to go, you know, in there and find sheds just because it's, you know, you got to look hard to yeah. find them, um, scour every, you know, row and everything. Um, and then you're still competing with stocks and everything yeah. else that looks like a shed. But... Uh, I mean, food sources first. Then if I find a big shed and I don't find its match, then I kind of start figuring out where this deer's going or came from, where the other horn might be, and following those trails that lead back into those bedding areas and walking those trail systems all the way back to where they're you know, bedding up on a ridge or, or a pocket, you know. And that's, you know, scouring those areas as well. Mm-hmm. It's just... It's amazing to me, you know, how a big deer can dig a hole and bury his antlers like he does, but it generally <laughs> always does, you know. Yeah, it's it, funny. It's crazy, um, but, you know, this time of year is the perfect time. Um, they're in, in Here in the Midwest, uh, it, it changes different parts of the country, but uh, right now, you know, from this uh, mid-February period through, you know, middle of March is, you know, peak shedding. Yep. And, and they're going to be dropping their antlers. Of course, uh, yeah, we go way back in the day when we used to go to Canada and shed on. Remember those days? Oh, man. We were had fun, fun up there. We, we were, <laughs> we was nobody else shed on at that time. So, and, and the people, uh, the area, I think uh, Dennis had talked to Gary Donald that had a big buck magazine, and he told me the area where there was kind of sparsely populated and and a lot of deer in the area. They had 10 good winters in a row. And nobody, well, nobody, they were rodents to them up there. Those ranchers were like, get them out of here. Do you realize that we lived, you and I and Dennis and a few of the others that went with us, Jimmy, and no. uh, we, we lived in the best era of finding sheds in that particular window of opportunity yeah. of anybody in modern-day yeah. shed hunting times. So I, I always tell people, imagine a dream of like dreaming about shed hunting and pulling into a f- place or a field or a driveway and there's sheds laying all yeah, over, poking yeah. up through the snow and and you're the first ones there and nobody else has picked them up 
and you just get up and start scooping them up. That's what we did. We had truckloads of them. Yeah, we would come back with two truckloads full, three to five hundred antlers in a one week period. And it was amazing. Do you remember section eleven? I'll never forget that. We went into an area which was a big section of woods and little little ponds and stuff, and a lot of snow, but. The horns, you'd find horns that had been laying there for years. I can remember finding a Boone and Crockett set of shed antlers, walking over to pick them up, and they disintegrated in my hands because they'd been laying there for 15 or 20 years. Right. And it's like nobody's been in here ever. You know, know. it's like, wow. We we had some fun times up there. We went up there seven, eight years, I think. And that was, yeah, that was so amazing back then. And back in the day, you could bring skulls back. It was perfectly legal. They've changed everything now from from those old days. But I still go shed hunting in Saskatchewan, but I go now with Cody, and we go chasing big mule deer sheds, which is a whole different thing because there's something about these big chocolate mule deer horns that are laying out on top of these little ridges that that's where they shed because they go out and eat creeping cedar, which is their main food source in the winter, which is a little bush. Yeah. And uh, they don't feed on, you know, other food sources like whitetails. So now you, you know, ah, it's just... I love it. I mean, it's something about shed hunting that just... It is fun. It's, oh, I don't think I've ever... That's a, like a dream. Dennis still dreams about it. <laughs> he has nightmares. We have some old footage we'll have to show of that. Oh. It's it's amazing to go think back to those days. We would we would have so much fun. we go up there, and we got to know these people and become friends with them, the Lemontines and everybody up there. And we would go and stay at their houses, and... You know, all week we'd find sheds, and we had a, a rule. We had made rules up that, you know, if we pulled into a spot like a farmyard or something that where they've been feeding cattle and the deer been in there eating, and if they shed immediately in that vicinity, that any one of us could find an antler, then well, they, well, they all I, went into a pile. I, I have to I have to interrupt them here and tell you why that was. Was I was older than them. And when they'd see one, they'd take off running. And I could, I'd never had a chance to get one because they were tripping over each other and tackling each other to see who got there first. So we made up a lot of that. they go in a pile, and then we draw numbers, and we get the pick. At the end of the week. <laughs> Those were gimme sheds. Yeah, we called them the gimme pile. And we would, at the end of the week, we'd put all them horns out, and we would then draw a number to see who got the first pick. And, of course, Dennis, he was... <laughs> he, it was like life or death. If he drew number one, he was the happiest guy ever, but he would always get like three or four. So he never got to pick first and he would be, his lip would be hanging so far off. Yeah. It was so funny. I still remember all that. And he just put so much emphasis into trying to get that number one and, and trying to It'd take you know, him an hour just to get the, the number out of the yeah, hat. Remember how he sit there and trying to feel around, trying to figure out which one number one was? And he couldn't handle it. But oh. we those memories. Those uh, fun times. There was one time, Tom, that I have to mention to everybody that you know when I the till the day I die, I'll never forget it. It was that spot we pulled into where where um Lemontines had found this field with their airplane in the middle of a section that you could never see from the road. You did not know it existed. And it was that it was that field that was left standing crop all winter. And all those deer from, you know, the entire region had vacuumed to that field and and shed all shed their horns here. 
and there was only uh, one sinkhole that had the trees, and everything else was just wide open. And we uh, we snowmobiled to that field, and we come over the hill, and we stopped, and then we looked down there, and it looked like you know it was a cattle lot. There was, but they were all deer in there instead of cows, and uh, we went down there, and the deer just kind of ran up out of the field and stood there and watched us. And there were sheds laying, remember that? Everywhere. Actually, we made piles. I brought a video over of that. Do you? I got it with me. And I'll give it to you. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to see and it. And so, it's so you get right up on wheel and one, you had piled up a bunch of horns in one spot. Yeah, we had to make and, piles. And there were so many running. horns. Yeah. <laughs> was, yeah, we were making piles of antlers. There was antlers poking out of the snow everywhere. I, I think we picked up, oh, we had to pick up at least 75 to 100 horns in that mm -hmm. one field. I went into that sinkhole that day, and there was antlers everywhere in there, like they were planted. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody, I mean, honestly, well, it was a shed hunter's dream. The, the thing up, up there at that time was I could, I could understand how these deer could survive the winter because there was no food. So you can imagine a standing wheat field that was the only one in the area because they don't grow corn up there, and they don't grow crops like here. So when they pick the wheat or oats or whatever, there's nothing left but straw. So I thought, what do those deer eat? And wherever there was a, they were all in the feedlots. I actually got some video picking them out of troughs on the feedlots, all wherever they had feed for cattle. Oh, I remember that. And yeah. then remember on top of the bales too. Yeah, the, they lay up there. Round bales, they'd eat them right down to the ground, and these ranchers would just go shoot the deer to try to keep them off the bales. And it, it was the trails in the spring were about that wide of deer manure, just going out. Like I got some video of that stuff too, and the dead deer laying around there. Guys, yeah. they all died of lead poisoning. Yeah, because <laughs> the farmers were shooting them. A, a, a rancher. What would happen is the deer would all live, you know, in the woods or the, the valleys around their, their farms. The bush. <laughs> and as soon as all that deep snow would come, they would just come into the to their farm Feed lot up. where there was some food, which was there for the cattle. And the hay, they would have round bales, and they would stack all them round bales together and make basically a big square area of round bales. And guess where the deer, they were like goats. They, they slept and ate on top of the round bales. They never even left. And we'd pull up there, and there would be 100 deer or so sleeping on top of those round bales looking at us, standing there like, you know, goats standing up there. And they'd kind of start bailing off if we went over there. And we'd get up on those round bales and walk around and find sheds. I, I, can, I can remember. And, but they would pee up there and wreck the Wreck feet. the bales, and the farmer hated them. Yeah, and I can remember the first time I went up there, stayed in that little motel, and... 10 o'clock news, they're interviewing a rancher, and he goes, he's standing there, and there's deer all over behind him, and the guy, he says, I don't know what I'm going to do. They're eating me out of house and home. I got 600 deer in my yard. I said, get that guy's address. Yeah, we'll go shed on. We're going over there. <laughs> uh, it was fun those years. Oh, oh, we had a great time. Oh, my gosh. We we had the best times of our life. We didn't even know it. Yeah. We, you know, we just got so spoiled that shed hunting around here is, <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah it's like yeah it's not even shed hunting compared to those days but i'm glad you brought that footage what well, yeah. it'll be fun to see yeah. and we'll be playing it here um i appreciate you talking about shed hunting so you know that'll help some beginners get started if they're thinking about places you know scour the food sources start there and uh, i think it's important to also mention that if you're 
know, when you go shed hunting, you got to shed hunt where there's been bucks shedding. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Look at, I always watch this time of year, where are the deer at right now? Because if it warms up and stuff, they'll yeah, they spread, spread out up. again and they can be anywhere. But the, watch the weather and watch Scout where them. the pounded areas are. Spot them when they're shedding this time of year and know where they're at. Yeah. Too many people think, well, I'm going to go and shed hunt where I deer hunt. Yeah. Well, that's probably not where they're wintering. Yeah. You got to go figure out where they're shedding their antlers at the certain time of year the, the, the deeper the snow and the colder it gets the bigger mm. groups they go into and yeah. if you're in an area like saskatchewan it's where the feed is because there is little feed it's always like, generally yeah. surrounded around the food they're going to be where there's food sources or yeah, yeah. whatever i mean you know some uh, some of our friends they hunt a lot in uh you know designated um refuge spots or state parks or areas that are protected from hunting that generally deer stay there all year and those are good spots as well but a lot of times pressured by other shed hunters now shed hunting has become a very popular sport it's a great you know it's a great sport to get the family involved we the, our kids are ate up with shed hunting and you know case in point his kid uh, shane is isn't it on guy really never took hunting serious but uh Man, shed. When it comes to sheds, I used to shed hunt at Tom's place, and now Shane goes over and pillages the place. There ain't enough shed to be found because he's picked them all up, <laughs> and Tom don't even get to pick them up unless he gets them before Shane. So, uh, but the kids they get into it, and uh, I got my, our kids are just love it like crazy already. Yeah, yeah they're into it. Um, so we're we're having fun with that, and it gets them it gets them really started, you know on that following deer and mm -hmm. kind of gets them, you know, involved in more than just hunting, you yeah. know, and shooting something. They get yeah. they get kind of that itch to find a deer antler off a particular deer, yeah. you know, yeah. and follow the story in the life cycle of that deer from that shed antler. And if they got trail camera and get it on their camera and then they find a shed off it or something, it, it just starts the whole process. Yeah, great, great points about shed hunting. Hey, what... Tell me what's next. Uh, what's up this next year for Buffalo County? Well, are you looking forward to well, what I, things are looking like? You know, like I said, we're always learning different things, and especially, you know, I don't think that'll ever stop. Or I, I don't think I'd be doing this if it did. <laughs> but I noticed a few years ago it was we had a, a Shane was trying to get his girlfriend at the time, Holly. They're married now, but uh, get her her first deer and film it. So he was holding her back from shooting a lot of younger bucks and stuff. And so there was a buck we were kind of following on the farm there, and it was actually six years old. And uh, it should have been a Boone and Crockett buck because he we had the sheds off him and he was. And uh, we had a crazy year where it, right about this time of year, just the end of February, it warmed up and it was like spring out. And so all of March it was all by my lilac budded out and all the trees budded out and then in april and may it froze out and we had this ice storm in may and stuff and every, all the buds froze off so that year we had all the oaks uh, buds froze off we had no acorns we had no no apples you know everything froze out even the walnuts and everything and so that 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 fall they went into the fall and and uh deer, deer didn't have much to eat because mm -hmm. there was no apples, there was no 
they just browsing on stuff. So the next spring, uh, it uh, everything everything greened up and started to spring. Well, it, it rained all the way through into. Uh, um, well, I should rephrase it. It rained that spring after after that winter and that early spring. It rained all through uh, uh, May, so the farmers couldn't get in the field. So uh, there's a lot of cash cropping around us and stuff. So these farmers are renting a lot of thousands of acres. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't get anything planted because they couldn't get in the fields. So to get insurance, they had to plant late. They had to plant uh, brassicas and stuff. Mm -hmm. So. When the deer came off the winter, they had nothing to eat that year. They had nothing in the in the spring, and as everything had froze out and stuff before, so there was no apples. Not so. When all these brassicas came out, they had to plant them the end of August or in August, so they could to get insurance reasons off them. So they were breaking up the soil, so they had to put a cover crop yep, in there. Yeah, and it's good nitrogen. Yeah. So that that turned out to be all food plots basically, because mm -hmm. they were all brassicas and stuff. So huge fields of them. Plus, uh, sure, we had a bumper acorn crop, and because of the, all the rain in, the, in, in May, yep. that we had a bumper acorn crop that year. And so in, in the uh, when those deer got that, I had run cameras during the winter, and those deer looked anorexic. They were down to skin and bone and just looked terrible. And when they got those acorns and apples and all and Nebraska stuff in in August and September and October they put the weight back on but all the racks were shrunk down because all the year one and two year olds were like four corns and spikes and I had I had like 80 different ones on my cameras just you know, the the three-year-olds and older deer all from the sheds we had all lost about 20 inches wow. where they should have gained right well, inches. what it, what it, what happened was, was she shoots a six-year-old deer that year on film that he filmed. Yeah, yeah, we put it on our show. Yeah, it was on there. Yeah, well, that that deer, uh, we weighed it live weight, and once it got those, it came from anorexic looking. It was three hundred and thirteen pounds live weight. We, wow. we weighed it. Yeah, it should have been a Boone and Crockett buck. It scored one forty-two, so he had shrunk down like twenty inches where he should have gained twenty more. And yeah. so from going from a Boone and Crockett buck, he was down to, way down to nothing. So this year, last year, we had a great year for acorns, a bumper crop this year. I mean, they're everywhere. And they didn't get the corn off. I rent out some corn land, and they didn't get it off this year until December. So when they went in and took it off, they spilled a bunch in the field. Well, in the normal year, those deer would have eaten that up this winter. It laid there two months. They didn't even touch it where they spilled it. And I thought, because they could get at the acorns and all that. A lot of other food sources. And those available. acorns brought, I, I think it must be such high protein in them. To see mm -hmm. that deer go to 313 pounds from looking anorexic in two months on acorns and apples or whatever, they can re, they're can. they so resilient, they come back just, wow. Yeah. Their, their lifestyle is so fast compared to ours. I mean, they you know mature... A fawn is mature in six months almost. I look yeah. like I've been eating acorns a lot. Yeah. <laughs> you got to quit eating. Unless I don't look anorexic, that's for darn sure. Uh, our deer here are looking good. I'm I'm excited. Yeah. I think this it's been mild so far, and unless something changes, we're gonna have an, an, a great year of antler development. And and you know with 
everything's setting up well. We got a lot of food that's going to carry them through the winter here and into the spring, which is important that they ain't going to have to go and start browsing. You know, they need some natural browse in order to to, uh, digest, but, you know, they got enough stuff here to eat. Uh, Again, I leave a smorgasbord, um, and I want to make sure that uh, I'm going to keep them healthy throughout the winter months, but... They so already far. are in almost through the winter, and they, right. they look really good this year. Yeah, so it's going to be a good year this year. Yeah. You know, it, it can change. We could have a real long snap now of cold and and ice. Ice is ice terrible is, for it, you know. Well, that's why you leave standing stuff so they can get at it. Get above, yeah, yeah, so they get above it. And they, they don't bed very far from the food sources, you know, this yeah. time of year. they generally pretty close, you know, unless they have some, some sort of added pressure. But... Yeah, it's going to be, should be a good year. Well, I got yeah. some big deer that are, you made it through and, uh, you know, we'll be looking forward to next year for sure. It's always so. exciting to see what shows up too. And yeah, well, I have to get it. We'll have to get together. I'm, you know, you can uh, keep me you know, deer kind of tied up over there for this next year. I love to come over <laughs> and hunt as we always do. It's just yeah. so fun to get over there and, you know, how can, if if somebody's interested in has been watching this podcast or listening to it, how can somebody get in touch with you in order to come maybe possibly down and book a hunt someday? Well, basically just go on my website. It's bluffcountryoutfitters.com and or my numbers are on there and just all uh, your contact is right on yeah, your website. Right on the website, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, well, hey, I appreciate you joining us today. It's been a true honor, like I said in the beginning. This is one of my biggest mentors if not my biggest uh over the years and getting me involved in the deer and deer hunting it's been uh a true joy <laughs> and, and a learning experience believe me and i was just excited today to talk shop and talk deer with tom and uh, i'm sure there'll be many more things i'm going to learn from you <laughs> over the time i learned some today so hopefully everybody got a chance to pick up a few tips here and there that do thing was awesome. I never even thought about about the wind, you know, windy nights versus non-windy nights. So I'm going to keep that in mind next time when I go out. But uh, we appreciate you joining us on this episode of uh, Driven Hunter, and uh, we'll be bringing you just some more great podcasts in the future.